The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Open up your Bibles, please, to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36. Ezekiel 36. Pastor Jason, this morning in 2 Corinthians 3, um, verses 4 and 5, this is what he had said. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as the guarantee. So we have a down payment, and with that down payment, the absolute certainty that more is to come. And when we look at the Old Testament, we get this picture of the future. A picture of the future that is a lot like um, you and I sitting sitting at the base of a valley looking up at a vast mountainscape. And as we look at the mountainscape from the Old Testament perspective, there's all these peaks, and it's actually difficult to see because some peaks are tall and some peaks are close. And it's difficult when we're looking at the Old Testament to actually assess time and connections because some peaks that are actually high but farther may just appear closer. And when we look at the Old Testament, so it's, it's like there's all these things that are going to happen and the prophets are disclosing the new covenant is coming. The age of the Messiah is coming. There's going to be the Spirit. There's going to be the land. There's going to be forgiveness. And how it's all going to work out is not actually as clear as it is to us. We're now in a helicopter. We're flying over this mountainscape, and we're able to pinpoint, look at there, the suffering of the servant. Look at there, forgiveness won. Look at there, Pentecost, the Spirit is given. What are we supposed to do with the land? Things are still a little blurry to us. Today we're going to camp out on one of the most beautiful, everlasting covenant texts in the Old Testament. It's one that the New Testament authors go back to all the time. And at the heart of it is the promise of the Spirit. But there's more than just the Spirit. And we're going to unpack all of that more as Ezekiel saw it. But what we have to remember from this perspective, this side of the cross, this side of Pentecost, is that we have the Spirit as the assurance that more is to come. Or as Pastor Jason was saying this morning, we have every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1 verse 3, and the Spirit provides the assurance that the full inheritance, which will include physical resurrected bodies, Ephesians 1 14, all of it's going to come. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. We're not going to live forever in this spiritual state, but we already have the Spirit. Every spiritual blessing has been secured and every physical blessing has been secured. But all we have so far are the spiritual blessings. And we hold fast to the work of the Spirit in our lives, the certainty that the Spirit works in us, bearing fruit, giving us confidence that indeed we're held by God, and therefore we have perseverance even through really hard, hard times. The book of Ezekiel, Hope for Israel and Judah, and we're going to camp today on chapter 36. We're going to begin in verse 16, which is the setting for this chapter, and get, we're going to quickly make our way down to verse 22, which kicks us off with the prologue. But this is such a rich text, and... I want to get to the end. I really want to get to the end of it, which is verse 32. And to get to the end means we're going to have to um, put our cruiser into high speed and just make our way through it. I anticipate we might see some things we've never seen before. Talking about what the new covenant is supposed to be about. 
some elements in this text I had never seen before. And God gripped my soul and, and helped give clarity to one reason why God lets sin continue and doesn't save us to eternity right away. One reason why He wants saved sinners in heaven and He wants sinners, saved sinners to remember their sin forever. Yet without condemnation. Pray with me as we enter into this text. Dear God, through blood-bought grace and the presence of Your Spirit, I come to You boldly and I ask that You would meet us now. Unpack your word for us. Give us clarity. I thank you that you are a God who works for the sake of your name to bring yourself, to let yourself be known for who you are in the lives of a bunch of sinners that saved people might be caught up in grace, uncondemned and glory in the mercy that you have shown us forever, celebrating Jesus forever as the only sufficient one who could satisfy your wrath and supply us righteousness. Meet us today. Make the new covenant in which we live more clear. Make our responsibility in that new covenant more clear. Make much of Jesus today. Amen. All right, I'm going to, I just realized I had to hop through my notes. Ezekiel 36, 22. Uh, I do have handouts. Thanks, Brother Brad. Okay, Ezekiel 36, We begin in verse 17. In verse 22, God's going to start to talk. He's going to give the prophet words to speak. But there's a preliminary speech that we pick up in verse 16. The word of Yahweh came to me. Me is Ezekiel the prophet. He said, Son of man... When the house of Israel lived in their own land, that's the land of Canaan, the land secured for them through Joshua, the land overseen by David, the land ripped away from them by the Babylonians. When the house of Israel lived in their own land, before the exile, they defiled it. They made the land sick by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. Uncleanness is something we, in our Western evangelical culture, don't get as much. Uncleanness is still a part of many world religions. Just last night, my uh, wife's parents, um, Herb and Jane Lennon, they're here this morning, and they were over at our place, were eating pork. And I said, one of the new things that I've learned recently is that we're eating victory food. No longer unclean. Something happens in the coming of Christ. So unclean animals as I understand it, are those that in some way were able to be linked up with the serpent in the garden. Animals that are for death, predatory, trying to kill, unclean. That's what the serpent was in the garden. The serpent got thrown down in the dust. That's where he would be forever. He's a bottom feeder. Animals that are associated with the bottom are unclean. If you don't have a hoof to separate you from that defeated realm, you're unclean. But Jesus comes as the serpent killer and 
crushes the head of the serpent, and definitively, therefore, we eat pork as victory food. Something's changed. Everything's changed. Jesus has come. Uncleanness in the Old Testament didn't, wasn't only related to um, food, it also related to numerous other aspects of life. And bodily discharges, any type of bodily discharge, was considered unclean. And the image most likely is that as fluids leave your body, it's a picture of death. You need those fluids in there to sustain life. So when the fluids are leaving, it's a picture of death. And anything related to chaos or death was not allowed to link up with the presence of God, which is about life in the tabernacle. So we have these pictures. Sexuality was a beautiful thing. God gave it. There is tolerated uncleanness, and then there is prohibited uncleanness. Menstrual impurity was a tolerated, necessary uncleanness. And it lasted for a short amount of time, and it would be gone after a series of washings. But it still pointed to, there was a picture that it was depicting. That picture was death and chaos, which is hostile to God's life-giving plan. You were as if you, you were like a woman in her menstrual cycle to me. You weren't allowed to come near me. You were defiled and dirty. Sinful. Here's Ezekiel 22.4. You've become guilty by the blood that you have shed and defiled by the idols. We wouldn't see it in the English translation, but over and over and over again in Ezekiel, he doesn't use the normal word for idols. Ezekiel of... All the preachers in the Bible kind of lives on the edge. He had to do weird things in his own life. You know, we talked about a little bit of that last week, where he had to dramatize at a level that no other prophet had to live out his message. Well, here he's using language that most of us would be uncomfortable with because he doesn't use the normal word for idols. He uses the word for dung. Now, I could try to scare the hell out of you. By saying something else, he uses that language. He says, these idols are like dung. No better than that. And that's what he normally calls them. Little dung pellets. That's what you're worshiping. You're bowing down to dung to arrest their attention. So they have a problem. They have a problem with bloodshedding, specifically child sacrifice. And they have a problem with idolatry. You've brought your days near. The appointed time of your years has come. Therefore I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all the countries. Verse 19, I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. A just judgment from God due to Israel's sinfulness. If you're going to spend your life running from God, He'll just say, okay, go all the way. If you don't want to be near me, if you don't want to be a follower, then I'll just heighten your desire to run, and I'll push you even farther from me. But something happens. Verse 20, When they come to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name in in that the people said, this is the people of Babylon, these are the people of Yahweh. And yet they had to go out of his land. Profaning the name of God. He's holy, not profane. He's not common. But he's being acted like a common deity, not the supreme, ultimate deity. Wait, you're the people of Yahweh? I thought he was the causer of all. I thought he's absolutely supreme and absolutely for you. Absolutely able and absolutely willing to keep you safe. And yet, 
You've been kicked out of his land, and every battle in the ancient world was a battle against the gods. So when the Babylonians came in and crushed, Yahweh was being portrayed as very small. But he's not. His name, by its very nature, means he causes everything. And this is my name. Don't forget it. It's my memorial name. The causer of all things. I am is who he is in his existence. But when we call him by his name, Yahweh, we're declaring he. He says, I am the self-sufficient, all-sustaining one. But when we talk about him, we say, he is the causer. And now, his absolute control over everything is being minimized. His name is being profaned. And so, the new covenant is going to come about as a name reclamation project. Having nothing to do with any of us, ultimately, or anything to do with the Israelites, having everything to do with God. Notice what it says. Here's Exodus 34. For you shall worship no other God, for Yahweh is jealous with respect to His name. He wants to be known for who He is. In fact, it's not only His desire, it's right and necessary. It's right for God to live for the sake of His name because He's God. I'm not. Hello, I'm talking. Some of you are not writing. Right. This is Jason of all things. My words. They're so important. Right. Hurry. Right. If any of you get a new song and write it about me, we'll sing it together. (laughs) I may be jealous for the sake of my name, but it would be sinful. But it's not for God. It is absolutely right because he's God to live for the sake of his name. But it's also necessary because if God was passionately working for anything higher than himself, here's God over all things, and all of a sudden God began to live for something higher than his name, he would stop being God. The very nature of God demands that he be for himself above all things. We want a God who is over all. Therefore, it is necessary that he be jealous for his name, jealous for his fame, jealous that he preserve and display his glory above all things. It is right and it is necessary, and it's also loving. It is the most loving thing that God can do to say, love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. It's the most loving thing he could do because only in a context where we're following him do we enjoy salvation. And He's the only Savior. Don't look at other things. Don't put your hope in anything else. I am it. Come to me. And it's the most loving command He could ever give. And in His presence is full joy for the longest amount of time. Come to me. And so God is passionately working here for the sake of His name that has been profaned. So we come to verse 22. The prologue. To this speech. Therefore, this is what I want you to say to the house of Israel, Ezekiel. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, the sovereign Yahweh. It is not for your sake, not on account of you, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. And what he's about to do is talk about the new covenant. The new covenant work that's going to overcome the curse, remove darkness, fix sin. Ultimately, it's not because you're good or because you deserve it. I'm going to do it not for your sake, but for the sake of my holy name. You and I right now are caught up in a name reclamation project. We're part of it. We are here today. I hope you're here today as a saved sinner that's part of God's New covenant work in order to fix the name problem. His name was diminished and now through each one of us, he's wanting to make himself, his name known. The true name, the the clear picture of his character, the beauty, the worth of our God. Through each one of us, that's what he's wanting. He's working, he's building a new covenant for the sake of his name. Not for your sake, 
that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. That feature of God's being that declares His absolute worth and value and self-sustained nature, His absoluteness, His soulness, that when holiness enters into this world, it becomes absolute sovereignty and absolute worth over all things. His holy name He's working for, which you have profaned among the nations to which you have come. So now we move into verse 23, and what we're going to see is a series of four elements that unpack our understanding of Ezekiel's vision of the new covenant. Four different ways. So we're going to see the goal of the new covenant transformation, the basis for the new covenant transformation, the nature of the new covenant transformation, and the ballast of of new covenant transformation. Now, the reason I can catalog each of these this way is because there is a structure to this passage that is so clear. Each unit is going to start out with saying what God's going to do. And then it's going to be followed by what the result of His activity is going to be. And then as soon as we start hearing again what God's going to do, we're in the next unit. So the pattern happens four times. God's going to act, here's the result. 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 So we have four specific groupings, and then I've just looked at the content and said, well, this is clearly goal, this is clearly basis. He's unpacking the nature of how all of this is going to be accomplished, and then he's, at the very end, giving ballast, a necessary Ballast so that our little ship, as we're heading toward eternity, doesn't tip over with a massively high tower of grace. We need some ballast underneath that will keep all the grace that we've enjoyed not to turn into pride. And so the last element is this deep rudder, and we'll see what that is. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 4. When you're in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, both the blessing and the curse, when the curses come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord, your God, and you'll obey His voice. I think what Moses is anticipating is the exact same thing we're going to read about here in Ezekiel. Ezekiel is anticipating a day when the curse has been done, when the exile of Israel has been completed, and now they're in the day of new living, new following, radical God-centeredness. But it says here something so important. Why are they going to return to the Lord? Why are God's people going to, all of a sudden, rather than living lives of disobedience that defile and profane, be a people who obey? Because, verse 31, for Yahweh your God is a merciful God. So I take Deuteronomy chapter 4 and I take Ezekiel 36 and I've got this beautiful image The reason the new covenant comes about, which all of us now get to enjoy, is not because of us, but because he's interested in passionate for his own name. That's Ezekiel. Moses says, why is the new covenant going to come about? It's because of mercy. So God's passion for his name is not separate from his love for us. Like I just said, His passion for His name is the most loving thing He can do for us. To remain being God and then let us taste a facet of His character that would not be understood if it were not for a world of sin. We wouldn't treasure mercy. We wouldn't understand God's justice were it not for a world that needed the cross. And God wants us to delight in all of Him, holy.
And His mercy ignites the new covenant. His passion for His name. The goal of the new covenant. Look with me at verse 23. So as we do, keep in mind what is God's activity and then look for the shift when it begins to express the result. We're going to see that pattern four times. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. I will do it, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. Result. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord Yahweh, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So we're anticipating God moving in such a way that will, in the New Covenant context, take what was profaned and now let it be shown for its distinctiveness. Whatever's going to happen in the New Covenant is about God's name. He's going to put Himself on display. And it's going to happen in such a way that all the nations will declare He is God. They will know that I am the causer of all things. Think about Pharaoh. That was his question. Moses came in and said, Pharaoh, let God's people go. And Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? And I will not let the people go. You don't know who Yahweh is? Let's go back to school. I have ten lessons for you. And then it says, when we get up to the Red Sea, and all of Egypt knew that Yahweh was God. And not only them, the word got out. So that Jethro, back in Midian, was able to say, now I know that your Yahweh is God of gods and Lord of lords. Not only did it stop with Midian, it went all the way up to 40 years later to Rahab and Jericho. Oh, I know your Yahweh. What he did to Egypt and to Pharaoh and all of his armies. And not only Rahab, but it reached the Gibeonites. Remember when they came and uh, deceived Joshua in Joshua chapter 8? And then Joshua says, why did you deceive us? Well, you know, we heard this story about what your God did to Pharaoh. And it wasn't only Gibeon. It was a hundred years later. Remember that story with Samuel and the Ark of the Covenant? At Shiloh, they take the Ark out. Hophni and Phinehas are bad high priests. And they take the Ark out and they take it into battle. And all of a sudden, Israel rejoices. And the Philistines, what do they say? Oh no, the gods have come into the camp. Which gods? The ones who delivered them from Egypt. For this reason, Pharaoh, I raised you up, that I might make my name known throughout all the earth. Exodus 9. And then Paul quotes it in Romans 9. God is here to make His name shown as holy. To display the reality and the value of His transcendent fullness through His people. And what's the result? The nations will know. Now here's my bridge. But you will receive power. Notice notice what's to happen in our verse. God is going to show Himself holy before the nations, but not just randomly. It says, I'm going to show myself holy when through you I vindicate the holiness of my great name before their eyes. So God's name reclamation project is going to be working through the people, not separate from the people. He's not just going to show up in great power and do ten plagues. He's going to actually do something that many would think is harder. He's going to change the human heart. You say, God did that. I say, nature did that. Hail. Darkness. It just happened by chance. But if you've interacted with this guy, and you've seen how cold and harsh and ugly he is, and all of a sudden he's a new man. That's what happened to my dad. 
He was working on a carpentry crew, and there was a man on that crew that was very different. And he wasn't safe, but he was a believer. And so my dad didn't go to him. He went to somebody else, and my dad got saved. Three years later, he's working on another carpentry crew. And one of the guys on the team, who was relatively new, said, So, Dave, where do you live? I live on, at the Rookery. It was the name of the five-acre parcel that my parents lived on. I live at the Rookery. You know that big piece of property on the corner of these two roads. And the guy said, oh, do you know the guy that used to live there? He was a beast. He was talking about my dad. In three years' time, he had become a different man. And what the text says is that God's going to do something in the people before the eyes of the nations in such a way that when they see your good deeds, they will glorify your Father in heaven. Or, in Jesus' words, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And what's going to happen? The Holy Spirit, it's specifically the Spirit of Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 says, O Theophilus, you know what I wrote to you in my previous book. Which book's that? He's in Acts. The Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, you know what I wrote in my previous book of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Why does he add that little word, began to do and to teach? Because what we read in Acts is what Jesus now continues to do and to teach through his Spirit in the lives of his apostles. So it's the Spirit of Christ. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit of the resurrected Christ, the curse overcoming, death defeating, sin defeating spirit comes upon you. And what's going to happen? All of a sudden, you're going to be my witnesses. The lives of the early church were lives that didn't draw attention to them, they pointed to the greatness of their risen Christ. Their Messiah, the Lord. They were witnesses of Jesus. They pointed to Him in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And all of a sudden, what happens after Pentecost is the Genesis 1.28 mission of Adam and Eve, fill the earth, multiply, and subdue it as imagers of God, take my image to the ends of the earth, begins to happen. It only begins, but it's inaugurated in a spiritual way without physical realities yet, but in a spiritual way, the Garden of Eden is all of a sudden beginning to expand. And the glory of God is being taken to the ends of the earth through His church. The temple is beginning to fill the whole earth because we are the temple of the living God. And people are meeting God through us. We are mediating the presence of God to the world. We're displaying the presence of God to the world. And I will do my name reclamation project through you before the eyes of the nations, and they will all know that I am Yahweh. It's only beginning, but it's beginning. And that's what we are involved in. This is the goal of the new covenant transformation. Worship, sorry, missions for the sake of worship. So I love what Pastor John has said. Missions exist because worship doesn't. And one day missions will pass away, but worship will last forever. Number two, the basis for new covenant transformation. What's the basis? The goal will not be reached apart from this reality. Changed, cleansed, forgiven people. Somehow the wrath problem has to be fixed. God, save us from ourselves and save us from you. God enters into the world to save us from himself because he, as a just judge, has to punish us. Hell exists because God is good and must punish sin. But he, in the context of a name reclamation project, works in a way to magnify a part of his character that would not be seen if all he did was wipe us all out. Mercy. 
So he creates a context where mercy is possible. Sins forgiven. The basis of the new covenant, restoration from the curse and exile and cleansing from sin. Here's God's action. And I will take you from the nations, and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you. That's what God does. And you shall be clean. Take, gather, bring. Those three verbs show up together a whole bunch of times in the Old Testament. The first time is in Deuteronomy chapter 30 in the two verses before the circumcision of the heart passage. Here it is. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heavens, from there Yahweh your God will gather you. From there He will take you. And Yahweh your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed that you may possess it. This is New Exodus language. Similar imagery in Jeremiah, who was Ezekiel's older contemporary. Therefore, behold, the days are coming when it shall no longer be said as Yahweh lives who brought, you, brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. They're not going to be thinking about that past Exodus anymore, as great and as glorious as it was. But as Yahweh lives, who brought up this people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Now we're going to, I believe, take a week in the coming weeks to just consider how do we understand, how does the Christian supposed to understand the land promises of the Old Testament? But already, I think we've gotten the grid work. Every spiritual blessing has been secured now in the hope of every physical blessing that will come later. And what's amazing is that the New Testament authors can take the Old Testament land promises and apply them to the church, Jew and Gentile alike, and say that we're living in the midst of them already. But here's what Jesus had to say about this Exodus theme. And behold, two men were talking with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Elisha, sorry, Moses and Elijah. Moses was there. And what were they talking to Jesus about? About the Exodus departure. But it's the only time the word shows up in this type of a context in the New Testament. About the Exodus that he was about to undergo in Jerusalem. What is he going to accomplish at the cross? He's going to redeem. He's going to save. He's going to remove people from the bondage, bound up in the curse, and he's going to bring blessing. And all of the New Testament language of redemption is built off of this. In Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Redemption, that's Exodus talk. You were bound up in prison, and I've brought you out of it. You're free. Redemption, that is forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Ephesians 1.7, Colossians 1.13 and 14, The Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have experienced the exodus. And we are redeemed in order to head somewhere, just like Israel. They came out of Egypt in order to get to the promised land. And the promised land is a picture of the Garden of Eden. What the promised land was for Israel, the Garden of Eden was for Adam and Eve. And Israel has the same mission that Adam and Eve were supposed to have. But like Adam and Eve, they sinned and turned on God and didn't image God, and so they got kicked out of their paradise just like Adam and Eve had gotten kicked out of theirs. But what does Jesus say in Revelation 2.17? Revelation 2.7? All of you believers, if you overcome, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You want to get back in the garden? That's where we're going. We already have our down payment. The ticket has been given to us. We're just waiting for the train to arrive. But we've got it, and nobody's taken it away. It's like 
a name that has been thrust between our eyes. It's on our forehead, Yahweh. You have one of two marks according to Revelation 14. It's either the mark of the beast or the mark of the lamb and of his father. Whose name do you bear? Don't bear it in vain. So, in the Spirit, the new covenant work of God, something happens. Cleansing. So it says, Result, you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. So you've got this parallelism, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. That's the ultimate result. Clean water. This image of sprinkling, sprinkling you with clean water, we only see sprinkling happen with blood in the Old Testament. This is the only water spot. And water is linked up with the work of the Spirit when we get to verse 26 and 27. Water and Spirit. Make sure you're washed with the water and with the Spirit. Most likely, this is what's behind Jesus' discussion of Nicodemus. But before we get there, let's look and see how Ezekiel, what he's imaging, what do they need to be clean from? I will... Israel's cleanness implies that Yahweh's wrath against their sin has been satisfied. If you're reading the book of Ezekiel, by the time you get up to Ezekiel 36, if he says you're going to be clean, that tells the reader something. Somehow God's wrath has already been appeased. And he doesn't tell us that part in this text. But he expects us to know it from these two others. Ezekiel twenty-two fifteen. I'll scatter you among the nations and disperse you through the countries, and I will consume your uncleanness out of you. Consumption, that's an image of a flame. It's sacrificial language. And as we know, God will always atone for sin. He'll either burn up the sinner or he'll burn up the substitute. So the question at hand is, which will he do when he consumes the uncleanness out of them? Is he consuming them as a sinner? Well, if he is, they're dead. And that's where God leaves them, dead. But now in the New Covenant, we're saying there's something more. You will have the Spirit in you. You will have new life. Which suggests to me that somehow, if now the same, once sinners are now saved, then God's consuming wrath must have been put on something other than them, like a substitute. Ezekiel 24.13, On account of your unclean lewdness, because I would have cleansed you, and you were not cleansed from your uncleanness, you shall not be cleansed anymore. You shall not be cleansed until I have satisfied my fury upon you. So these are the promises of God. He has to, by His very nature, take sin seriously. Water and Spirit in Ezekiel 36 Truly, truly, I say to you that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. Then, into this context, Jesus, right here, right in John 3, he's talking to Nicodemus, what do we get? He thinks of Numbers chapter 20, when the serpent, remember all these snakes were moving around serpents, images of curse and sin, they're moving around and killing Israel because of their rebellion against God. So what does God do? He takes one of those serpents, has Moses put it up on a pole. He lifts up the curse, and they have to let their eyes turn in faith on the curse. Look at the curse, and believe that as you gaze upon the curse, I will take away your sin and pardon your sin. Gaze upon the serpent. And that's what Jesus becomes for us at the cross. So I think Jesus is pulling together a bunch of ideas, one of which is starting here in Ezekiel. That for there to be a new covenant among a people who were dead means that somehow God's wrath has to have been satisfied and Jesus is viewing himself as the wrath satisfier.
the nature of the new covenant, transformation, internal rebirth, and a reconstitution of the God-people-land relationship. There's always God, he's relating to a people, and he relates to those people in a context called the land. And the land is not absent, I just think it's not here yet. Every spiritual blessing now is we await the full down payment later. And what the new heavens and the new earth are, are the land promises come to fruition. New Jerusalem at its center, and the land now expanded, the Garden of Eden now expanded to fill the whole earth, and all of us enjoying the paradise of God as we image God perfectly around the globe, and the glory of God is displayed. The nature of the new covenant. Here's God's action. Verse 26, And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I, would put, I will put within you. Two different things. I will give to you a new heart. Every believer gets a new set of desires, a new will. But we can't equate that will, new set of desires, new hungers, new passions, new way to think. We can't equate that with God. What we need is also a spirit to be within us. A new heart to us, a new spirit within us. God's presence fueling those desires, fueling those hungers. So I will put a spirit within you. And what's he going to do? Sorry, verse 26. Take out the new heart, put in a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And all of a sudden it's going to give rise to fruit New activity. Specifically, the kind of activity that is not lawless, but you'll walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The obedience of faith. Here's how we see it elsewhere. This passage anticipated and then this passage fulfilled. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. Yahweh your God in that day... In the day of the great return, in the day of restoration after exile, I will circumcise the foreskin of your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all. Every crevice, every cranny of your internal makeup and of your entire being, every action, every glance, every perception transformed by the love of God. Really, now and only perfectly later. But a new trajectory set. Jeremiah 31. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days. I'll put my law within them. So you've got a new heart that now has something etched upon it. And that law will be there, and then the Spirit will be working, and as it does, the image of God will be put on display. I'll put my law within them and write it on their heart. Here's Jeremiah 32. I'll make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn from them. I will not turn from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their heart. So we've got a new heart. We've got an inscribed heart. Now we have the fear of God by God being put on the heart. And the result is going to be they will never turn from me. God's going to do something that's going to keep us with Him forever. This is amazing hope. My sheep hear my voice. They know me. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. John 10, 27-30. Romans 2.29, Fulfillment. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, by the Spirit, Ezekiel 36. Not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Or 2 Corinthians 3, and you show in your own lives that you are a letter from Christ. He's the agent that brings about new covenant transformation from Christ. You're a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on the tablets of stone, but on the tablets of the human heart, who has made us not 
of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So according to Paul, and I believe according to Jesus, whatever Ezekiel's talking about is already operative in the lives, in our lives today. We're living in the context of fulfillment, and with that, amazing hope. What's the result? Verse 28, And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you. Sorry, that's the result. Verse 28, You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Israel will follow God's ways, dwell in the land, and covenant relationship will be enjoyed. Again, we're going to have to try to figure out what do we do with the land promises. But we're going to do that. I hear the music over there. I'll just keep going really quick. The ballast. Now see if you can track with me here. This is, this is the part that I think will be foreign to many in this room. Because we live in a context of grace where there is no condemnation. But when Ezekiel envisioned the new covenant, he saw a very significant part to play with the fact that we have been sinners and that this is not for our sake, but for his sake. Read the text with me. Verse 29, God's action. And I will deliver you from your uncleanness. He already said he would save them from it. He would forgive them, remove it. But it's not only going to be removed as if you've, you're forgiven once. He says he'll deliver you from it. That's hopeful. No longer bound to pornography. No longer bound to bitterness. No longer bound to greed. Delivered. That's the new covenant promise that we can put our feet upon and, and hope in. And trust God for Verse 29, not only will you be delivered from your uncleanness, God's activity is still going, I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. And I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Again, we're going to come back to try to understand how to put that together. Verse 31, and you will in the new covenant day remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. When I read that, it suggests to me there is a necessary place to remember who we are apart from Jesus. There is a place for eternity in the new covenant for us to ever, ever remember what we've been saved from. That we're not supposed to forget, but we're supposed to eternally loathe. See if you can track with me here. Israel will remember and loathe their past sinfulness. Ezekiel talks about this loathing in the context of the new covenant often. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am Yahweh that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you. They're atoned. No condemnation. But still remembering, I'm a sinner apart from this amazing new covenant mercy. Apart from all that God has done for the sake of His name and on the basis of His mercy, I would be nothing. And God needs us to remember that forever. And there you shall remember your ways and all your deeds with which you defiled yourselves, and you shall loathe yourselves from all the evils that you have committed. Loathing sin is the antidote for crushing pride. How much of a tendency we would have in celebrating grace to begin to think that we have something by privilege, by right, that all of a sudden, because we've tasted mercy, I'm better than my neighbor. Loathe your sin forever. And then let it be the fuel to help you kill pride and cling to the cross. God glorifying, not self-deprecating shame. 
is what we're talking about here. Because remember, whatever's happening in the New Covenant is supposed to be God's holiness put on display through us in the sight of the nations. Not my pity party put on display for the sight of the nations. The New Covenant is about bringing glory to God's name. Somehow through me, not approaching people as if I'm better than them, but through me, approaching them as a blood-bought sinner, saved only by grace. It'll keep us on a level plane with all those who don't know yet, who haven't experienced the mercy of God, and it'll help us celebrate wholly the grace of God by never forgetting what we've been saved from. The humility of the new covenant draws attention not to self, but to the mercies of God. So here I end. A couple of quotes from my friend Charles. He died in 1836. Charles Simeon. He was a professor at Cambridge University and an amazingly godly pastor. Pastor John wrote one of his Swan series biographies on Charles Simeon. And all these quotes are drawn from his little book called The Roots of Endurance. Listen to what Charles has to say. I have continually had such a sense of my sinfulness, even as a believer, as a new covenant saint, such a sense of my sinfulness deep down holding me on task. I've continually had such a deep sense of my sinfulness as would sink me into utter despair if I had not an assured view of the sufficiency and willingness of Christ to save me to the uttermost. He has a high sail, confident in the mercies of God. That's what's blowing him along. But notice what else he says. And at the same time, I have had such a sense of my acceptance through Christ as would overset my little bark. So much mercy blowing on me. I have such a high sail receiving so much mercy that if I didn't have the ballast of the ever-present reminder of my sinfulness, my ship would be toppled over and I would get off task and not arrive at my destination. There are but two objects that I have ever desired for these 40 years to behold. Two objects. The one is my own vileness, and the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This I seek to be, not only humble and thankful, but humbled in thankfulness before my God and Savior. I have had deep and abundant cause for humiliation, but I have never ceased to wash in the fountain that was opened for sin and uncleanness, or to cast myself upon the tender mercy of my reconciled God. Verses 29 through 31 are not all of the new covenant. They're the ballast for the new covenant transformation. We live in the context of a high sale of amazing, a great goal, of of receiving a great goal, missions for the sake of worship, an unbelievable basis forgiven in light of God's wrath being appeased on the substitute. A remarkable nature, a new heart filled with the very presence of God for the glory of God to be seen through us. And an amazing ballast to keep us on target in balance with the high sail of receiving the great mercies of God. A deep rudder, tiller, which is it? Rudder. Deep down into the heart of the sea, reminding us ever, forever, of our need for Jesus. And we'll take it into eternity. We will continue to magnify the cross all the more because for eternity we will loathe our sin all the deeper. Just think when our pride is all set aside, we will celebrate the cross at a level that we've never tasted before for eternity because we will ever remember who we are. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these. This has gone long today but I thank you for helping us get through this amazingly rich text. May you be pleased. May you work in us your goal. May we celebrate the basis. May we live in the context of the nature. And may we ever remember the ballast that you have provided for new covenant transformation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, 
We invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.